Hello, and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. I'm your host, Garrett Brown. Today I'll be speaking with Tremper Longman III about his new commentary on the Book of Psalms in the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary Series published by IBP Academic. Professor Longman is the Robert... Hello, and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. I'm your host, Garrett Brown. Today I'll be speaking with Tremper Longman III about his new commentary on the Book of Psalms in the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary Series published by IBP Academic. Professor Longman is the Robert H. Gundry Professor of Biblical Studies at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. He has authored or co-authored more than 20 books, including commentaries on Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Daniel, Nahum, Proverbs, Jeremiah and Lamentations, and Job. Also of note, Professor Longman was one of the main translators for the popular New Living Translation and has served as a consultant on other popular translations of the Bible, including the Message and the Holman Standard Bible. In today's discussion... Professor Longman talks about the peculiar enterprise of writing a biblical commentary, the challenge of writing about the Psalms, and his own personal arc from meeting Billy Graham to learning Akkadian and studying Babylonian mythology and literature. In his preface, he writes, quote, The book of Psalms is not a theological textbook, but rather the libretto of the most vibrant worship imaginable. The book of Psalms does not only want to inform our intellect, but to stimulate our imagination, arouse our emotions, and stir us on to holy thoughts and actions, unquote. Now, on to today's interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Biblical Studies, a part of the New Books Network. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. Today, we're talking with Professor Tremper Longman about his new book, About the Psalms, a recent installment in the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary Series, which was published by InterVarsity Press in 2014. Tremper Longman, welcome to the show. Thanks, Garrett. Great to be with you. I wonder if you might begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'd I'd be happy to. Um, Well, I was born in Princeton, New Jersey, about 62 years ago, and uh, grew up in a very loving family, but not an overly committed Christian family, at least at this stage. And so um, I eventually, or my family eventually moved to Columbus, Ohio uh, when I was in first grade. And I remember uh, my parents taking me to a Billy Graham crusade in Columbus, Ohio, one of his earlier crusades, I think it must have been 1962, 1963, and I remember going forward and making a commitment at that point in my life. I later, in an interesting set of circumstances, uh, was had a, the privilege of having lunch with Dr. Graham uh, in 1985 when I was teaching in Acapulco, and he was down there writing a book on death, and got to talk to him about that. That was pretty exciting. But, um, but of course, as I grew up, I, I wasn't consistently going to church or anything. Uh, so my senior in high school, when I was 
playing football. I wasn't also, actually, I wasn't much of a student at this time either. I was more into football. I lived in a, in a community which uh, revered football. And so, uh, but a Baptist minister took an interest in our team and shared the gospel with us. And I uh, turned my life over to Christ at that time. And, and then I went off to college Ohio Wesleyan University, and while I was at Ohio Wesleyan University, I met the woman who would soon become my wife. We got married while we were in college, Alice, and she had just gotten back from Labrie, you know, and had uh, studied with had studied with uh, Francis Schaefer. Now she had just become a Christian a couple of years before, and. Interestingly, the couple that were instrumental in in her life it was a young seminary student in Philadelphia, um, and his wife. He was Andrew Lincoln, who has since become a very prominent New Testament scholar, teaching. Well, I just retired uh, this this month uh, from the University of uh, Gloucestershire in in the UK. And uh, but in any case, uh, I'm telling this story because when I met uh, Alice, her model of a devout Christian wasn't as John Eldridge in his wildly popular book, Wild at Heart, says, mm-hmm. a kind of ranching kind of guy, but rather an academic. And, uh, and she's the one who really encouraged me to get serious about my faith, and so I started studying. And and um, had you been yeah? Go ahead. Had, had you been interested in academic things at that point? Be after football, or well, no, I still was playing football in college. Oh, okay. <laughs> so okay. Uh, it was a small college, and uh, but at this point, I quit the football team and I devote myself to my studies, and uh, decide to go off to seminary, and I go off to seminary in Philadelphia, Westminster Seminary, where Alice's uh, mentors, uh, Andrew Lincoln and his wife, and actually there were two or three other uh, guys who went on to become New Testament professors. They all seemed to go off to Cambridge and get PhDs in New Testament. So I went to Westminster, and I went with the intention of teaching rather than going into the ministry uh, but I wasn't sure what area I'd go into, so I ended up uh, being really attracted to the teaching of a young professor there named Ray Dillard, and uh, Ray just got me extremely excited about the Old Testament. He encouraged me to go on. I went on to Yale to study the Bible in the context of the ancient Near East. I studied with... Um, well, my main professor was uh, W.W. Hallow, who just died last week at the age of 87. Uh, and uh, I did my dissertation on fictional Acadian autobiographies. And what got me interested in studying with Hallow was that he was an Assyriologist, an expert in ancient Mesopotamia, but he was interested and not a lot of Assyriologists are interested in this and using that knowledge in terms of illuminating the Old Testament text. So 
I studied with Hallow. I studied with R.R. R. Wilson, Jim Kugel, who was at Yale at the time, and a number of other people, Ben Foster, who's a very famous Assyriologist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then Ray encouraged me to apply for an opening at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, where I taught for 18 years. Ray and I were fast friends, but we also were professional colleagues, and we wrote an introduction to the Old Testament together that came out for, in the first edition, 1994. Ray actually died at the age of 49 in 1993 before the introduction appeared, but he had a big influence on my thinking. And uh, if I, uh, uh, maybe just another um, person who had a big influence on my thinking happens to be a peer of mine. As a matter of fact, uh, my best friend since eighth grade, uh, we went to junior high school, high school, college, and seminary together. And then... I went off to Yale to study uh, the ancient Near East and the Bible, and he went to work in a church in southern Florida where he was working not only in the church but with a young up-and-coming psychologist named Larry Crabb, who, uh, and they worked together for many years, and, and Dan has had a big influence on me in terms of wanting my scholarship to serve the church. I mean, I do write scholarly things that, you know, ministers and uh, lay people wouldn't be interested in necessarily, but I always try to use that uh, knowledge and research to help pastors understand the biblical text as they prepare to teach and preach it and lay people. And, And Dan and I have also collaborated on um, on about uh, seven books together. Mm. We're combining our interests in Bible and in counseling. So um, so, so that's a little bit about myself. Uh, I have, um, on a more personal level, I've mentioned my wife of 42 years, Alice, and uh, we have three sons, Tremper the Fourth, Timothy, and Andrew and two granddaughters, um, Mia and Gabrielle. And for exercise and fun, I play squash. I've been playing squash since I was five. My father was an All-American at Princeton, so even though I grew up in Ohio where there wasn't a lot of squash, I had that uh, introduced to me at an early age. Excellent. Well, I wonder if you might um, circle back and explain uh, what Acadian fictional biography is for those who don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that was the title of my well, the title of my published dissertation by Eisenbrand's fictional Acadian autobiographies. Um, I was thinking about this recently. That uh, since Hallow died last week, I remember going in to talk to him about my idea of writing a dissertation on Akkadian poetics. Now, Akkadian is the language of the ancient Babylonians and Assyrians. And I was thinking, and and we have some wonderful literature uh, from Babylon and Assyria, probably the most famous ones being the creation story called Enuma Elish and the Gilgamesh epic. 
And um, I wanted to write on Acadian Poetics, and Hallow simply said, no, too speculative. <laughs> and then he started pointing me in the direction of a uh, – oh, he suspected that there was a genre of fictional autobiographies, that is uh, – accounts of lives written in the first person, but not written by the purported autobiographer. I mean, a couple of them are, are autobiographies of gods like the god Marduk, and, mm -hmm. and others are of deceased kings. And so he got me interested in that, and so I translated all these tablets from the Akkadian, studied them as a genre, and then compared them to other similar types of texts in other ancient Near Eastern liter, liter, languages, but also the Bible. And that's what got me interested for the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes, because at the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes is the autobiography of Kohelet, often translated the teacher. So that's what sort of launched me into okay. uh, the study of wisdom literature. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, Let's talk about the Psalms. Um, sure. I, w I wonder if you might begin by talking about a point that you make on um, page 47 of your commentary. And you point out that Martin Luther called the Psalms a little Bible and the, yeah. and the summary of the Old Testament. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I, I'm pretty sure he meant that basically uh, all the main themes of the Bible are found in the book of Psalms. Uh, creation, redemption, uh, eschatology, um, you know, the law, uh, you name it. It's, uh, it's uh, the, the Bible, um, I mean, the book of Psalms articulates all the great teachings of Scripture. And actually, he's, you know, Luther wasn't the first one to say something like that. Uh, you could go all the way back to Athanasius, who lived around 300 A.D., and find uh, similar comments. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Uh, well, you know, I wondered if, when I, when I heard that, I, it dovetailed with, something I've been thinking about the, the more I look at the Psalms is the way in which they reflect um, the same literary and textual problems that we encounter um, elsewhere in the Bible. And here I'm thinking of problems of composition and dating the compilation oh, yeah. of the book as a whole, different, oh, yeah. the, the, the fact that there are different genres within the Psalms and even multiple authorship, not to mention all, separating out all the strands of theology or ethics but it, yeah. it, is that is that something that's influenced your writing and the way that you've approached the Psalms, and then also how you um, explain that to others in your in your writing? Sure. Yeah, um, you know um, that's all true and important. You know, it is it is true that the Book of Psalms very clearly wasn't written at one sitting by one individual, but came into existence over. Uh, many centuries and probably came to completion, um, you know, late in the post-exilic period, taking the form that we recognize. As a matter of fact, it's debated exactly when that 
took place because we have manuscripts of the Psalms at the Dead Sea that don't have the same order, though that can be explained in, in different ways. Uh, but, but I'm interested in those uh, questions of the history of composition. In the final analysis, though, I'm, I'm very much an advocate of what has been called canonical interpretation. That is, uh, probably Reverend Childs was the most articulate uh, describer of what that means, but, but it basically means that uh, no matter how a book came to be, what is scripture is what we have in the canon today. It also means that you interpret any particular book within the context of the completed canon. Um, so, so that influenced me. Now, sometimes some people, um, particularly since 1985, when one of Child's students, Gerald Wilson, wrote a doctoral dissertation about the editing of the Psalms, um, take it further than I would, and that is um, they believe that there's signs of a kind of deep structure to the book that has mm. some kind of meaning to it. Now, I do think, along with virtually everybody, that Psalms 1 and 2 function as an introduction to the book as a whole in Psalms 146 to 150, uh, function as a great doxology at the end of the book, but I, I, I think that some of the more uh, systematic explanations of the order of the Psalms go too far in our reading, meaning into the book as a whole, and that partly results from my hesitation that no one really discovered the the structure of the Psalms till 1985, oh, and, I see. Uh, mm-hmm. and also that people who take this kind of approach tend to differ with each other as to the nature of the structure. So I'm hesitant there, though I, I have to say I greatly respect the work of Gerald Wilson. He wrote a commentary on the Psalms before his untimely death, which I was the editor of in the NIVAC series. He got through the first half of the Psalms before he died, and mm-hmm. it's, it has a lot, it's, it's a very good commentary. Now, is, uh, is someone like Gordon Wenham, is he also representative yeah. of that school? Yeah, Gordon, Gordon also, and we've interacted on this uh, yeah, informally in conversation, and, uh, and he he, but he does in his recent writings uh, go in that direction as well. But again, Gordon is a fantastic interpreter of the Bible as a whole. But I, I, I disagree with him in terms of the direction he goes. So there, there are a whole bunch of people, probably Gordon and Jerry Wilson, and uh, in the German tradition. Um, Hospelt and Zenger in the Hermeneus series, which also 
are strong advocates of this approach. Yeah. Now, isn't part of their argument that the Psalms would have been used in a liturgical setting and that that you could actually read the Psalms from beginning to end in a matter of hours in some settings? So um, is this part of their argument about uh, the way they read the, uh, not just individual Psalms, but between the Psalms and how they relate to each other in their groupings as books? Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, they're definitely were used in ritual contexts. Um, I think there's something to what Mo Winkle said that the Psalms are the hymn book of the temple by which he meant the second temple. Um, but I don't think that that necessarily means that there's going to be a kind of meaningful structuring of the Book of Psalms in the way that, say, Wilson describes the dynamic of the Psalms, especially as he looks at what he calls the theme psalm, psalms, uh-huh. that is, the, the psalms that end and begin the five books as describing, you know, sort of the the rise and passing on and then the demise of the Davidic covenant in reference to a human monarchy and then giving way at the end toward a more messianic vision of the of the kingship of the Davidic covenant. Um, in my mind, he has to stretch the interpretation of, say, Psalm 89 as indicating the demise of the Davidic monarchy, certainly showing that it's in trouble, but it isn't talking about its demise. And then, you know, you, you have in that last part of the uh, last part of the book of Psalms, you have Psalm 132, mm-hmm. which is after Psalm 89, but, but in Psalm 132, the Davidic covenant is alive and well, to say the least. So I once, I, I debated Jerry in a couple of settings on this topic, and his response to me was, well, Psalm 132 is in the Psalms of Ascent, and the editor didn't really have much flexibility in how to treat that. And and I find that kind of uh, a weak response. I wasn't persuaded by that response. Mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. you know, we only get one really narrative comment about the structure of the book in Psalm, and that's Psalm 72, verse 20, which says, here ends the Psalms of David, son of Jesse. And of course, in the present order of the Psalms, it doesn't. So uh, I, it's kind of like those who try to create a narrative structure to the Song of Songs, you know, kind of a plot for the Song of Songs, or reading coherent units in Proverbs 10 to 31. Um, there seems to me to be more randomness than that allows, and, and you have to, since you don't get any... <clears throat> narrative signals, Mm -hmm. uh, you you have to create the structure and, and, and we're narrative animals, you know, so, so we'll create, we can create a story out of anything. (laughs) So that's been my hesitation, but again, um, that certainly doesn't disqualify the, 
the the important contributions that all these scholars have made to our understanding of the Psalms. So before we dive into the specifics about your commentary, can you first define what a commentary is? And in that sense, I mean, how does a reader use it different from, say, a study Bible? And when does one make the leap from the, uh, the, the, you know, the uh, latter to the former? Well, great. That's a, that's a great question, because study Bibles do contain commentary, but they are, um, are much briefer um, and, um, and so the kind of commentary that I wrote on the Psalms, and I've, I've actually written study Bible notes on the Psalms years ago for something called the Reformation Study Bible. I think it's called the Geneva Study Bible. Mm-hmm. It was called the Geneva Study Bible back in the day. Um, but, you know, in a commentary like the Tyndale series, I'm able to, you know, express my thoughts more fully. Uh, and, and, and of course, there are different types of commentaries that have different goals and different audiences in mind. So, um, so it's good. I mean, a lot of people will say, oh, we have enough commentaries. Well, actually, I'm of the school of thought that no, we don't, because A, uh, different commentary series have different goals and different audiences in mind, and also the different commentators will have insights and contributions that other commentators don't. No, so, it's, um, it's yeah. some commentators, I mean, some commentaries are actually written for um, clergy and for, right. uh, for as a teaching, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, for like sermon preparation and things like that. Is that right? And well, others, that's, that's right. Yeah. And others being intended for more of a lay audience. Yeah. You really have three different types of commentaries. I mean, you have Commentary, and again, these are overlapping sets. It's not saying it's only for scholars, only for pastors, only for mm-hmm. lay people. But um, and, and indeed, you know, if you're writing for pastors, uh, there's usually enough interest there that scholars will pay attention to it. The lay people probably won't be. And well, I mean, and then there's so actually there's some. There's some commentaries that you write for pastors that are accessible enough that lay people would find them interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I've written all three types of commentaries on various books of the Bible. Um, so, for instance, I I wrote commentaries on Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes for Erdman's Nightcott commentary, and that's definitely geared more toward scholars, but pastors find it interesting, but you deal with issues like the meaning of Hebrew words in a more technical way. You right. um, you consider textual variants and weigh the evidence. Um, you know, uh, you talk more about the technicalities of an ancient Near Eastern background and so forth. Right. So the and, so, and that would yeah. be typical of something like the Anchor Bible Commentary, um, which is now uh, published by Yale, right? And right. That, that gets into much more of the philological yeah. 
uh, yes. technical yeah. side of things. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. the early volumes of the, I think they now call it the Yale Bible Commentary, right. as, mm-hmm. since it's being published by Yale. But um, the early volumes of that were almost strictly focused in on the meaning of words and looking at cognate languages like Akkadian and Ugaritic and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more recent volumes have focused m- more broadly beyond that on the meaning of the text. And indeed, now those earlier volumes, I mean, I think the Anchor Bible commentary started coming out in the late 50s, early 60s, and it's still not complete, uh, but they're, they're redoing some of the early volumes of that series and and uh yeah it's, they're very valuable probably the most scholarly one is that Hermeneia series though mm-hmm. or the or the ICC series what does ICC stand for Com- oh it's uh, international critical commentary okay. which came out in the first edition in like you know 1990 to 1920 i mean 1900 to 1920 but now there's a second generation slowly appearing and it will be slow because it's so technical. It takes a long time to write that kind of commentary. I bet. And so your commentary on the Psalms appears in a series called the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary, or TOTC for short. Um, Correct. What makes this particular series distinctive, and how is this uh, new series different from the one that was produced under the same name in the 1960s? Yes, right. Um, Well, let's see. Um, The the TOTC, the original series that was published, as you said, beginning about 30 years ago, um, it intended to bring the best scholarship and make it accessible for pastors and lay people. And it's also written more concisely than a lot of other uh, commentaries. So um, I wasn't part of the decision to do a second generation of the TOTC, but I am the American editor of it. And um, and the reason why you need a second generation after 30, 40 years is uh, because, you know, there's a new generation of uh, scholars who have thought in fresh ways about the material, not that the material has changed, but um, but there has been further thinking about issues of, genre, of um, genre and meaning of words and poetics and so forth. Now, I happen to write on the Psalms, which argue, which you can argue, and I would agree with this, that the strongest volume in the Old Testament in the original series, among a lot of strong volumes, is uh, Derek Kidner's on the Psalms. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, that was pretty high standard. And that was published, um, that's published in 1975, correct? That's correct, that's mm-hmm. correct. And, and I never met Derek Kidner, but he was actually the scholarly advisor on my first book, How to Read Psalms, back in 1987. Oh, wow. And he, 
and he gave me some wonderful advice. And so I'm always indebted to him for the good advice he gave me about moving a couple sections around and maybe adding a section here and there. Um, they're keeping Kidner in press outside of the series, which I think is a wise move. But, you know, the new series has a slightly different structure. Uh, each section of the each section of the scripture, in my case, the Psalms, has uh, first of all. Let me just remind myself of the exact rubrics we use. Uh, this is the problem when you're when you write other commentaries <laughs> uh, since then. But um, but it begins with a section on context. So it talks about things like what type of psalm is this. You know, dealing with matters that are mentioned in the title of the psalm. Then it goes on to a comment section, which looks at the psalm section by section. It's not verse by verse, which is kind of a a, unfortunate way of doing it anyway, because you need to understand the different sections of the different verses of the psalm within its broader context. Right, and your and this particular commentary is not tagged to a translation. That um, that's uh, oh uh, yeah, it is actually. Oh, it's it is. The, yeah, it's the NIV. Oh, the um, NIV. Okay, that's the one you yeah. cite most often, but occasionally you will cite other. Oh know, yeah, the King oh, sure, James sure and the will. ESV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when I refer, for one thing, I was I was the main translator of the New Living Translation song, so I kept my... Uh, but the... Um, but, no, we use the NIV, and, you know, when we cite sections from the psalm in the commentary, we italicize it, and the italicized hmm. uh, references are all from the NIV. Oh, I see. Okay. And so, um, but then the third section, after context and content comes meaning and there you sort of reflect first of all on the the main theological themes of the psalm within its old testament context may reflect a little bit about how it might have been used in the worship and life of israel but here's one of my leading passions uh and this isn't true of all the volumes in this particular commentary series but in the meaning section, I reflect on the psalm from a New Testament perspective, particularly how the psalm might anticipate Christ. Because in my thinking about Old Testament interpretation, Jesus' comments in Luke 24 that, you know, all of Scripture anticipates his coming uh, encourages us to ask that question, not that we're going to find some kind of specific reference to Christ in every verse, but in my commentary, I talk about ways of reading and thinking about the Psalms that would be, uh, which would, 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 which would evoke a kind of Christological, or some people are using the term Christotelic now, uh, interpretation of the Psalm. Hmm. Okay. So uh, this may uh, be part of your next answer, what you've already said, but um, what what will a reader find in your commentary that he or she wouldn't necessarily glean from 
reading it for themselves um, or by glancing at the notes in the, in the study Bible? I mean, is, are there yeah. a couple examples that you could give? Oh, sure. Um, well, I, 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 I would emphasize that, that um, Christological uh, dimension that I don't think the only other commentary that does it, interestingly enough, is the, the critical commentary in the Hermeneus series by Hostelt and Zanger. Um, now, that doesn't mean there aren't other books. I'm thinking of commentaries. Um, you know, uh, already in terms of study Bibles, the only one I know that that moves in that direction is my own in that Geneva study Bible. But, mm-hmm. you know, you could only be very brief. Um, so, but yeah, let me give you, let me give you an example uh, from Psalm 98, if I sure. might do that. And, uh, and, and, and as I interpret Psalm 98, uh, I note that it's, composed of three different stanzas and the first and there are three verses each and so the first stanza um if you just give me a moment to turn to it in the in the niv um i can it's short so i can read it once i get there on my iPad. <laughs> so, uh, okay, here we go. So the first stanza, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So in this first stanza, uh, the psalmist calls on Israel to uh, praise God who saved them in the past. Now, um, in the Old Testament, when the language of salvation is used, it typically is used in the sense of uh, military victory. And if you study this phrase, new song, you'll see that uh, it occurs about a dozen times in the Old and New Testament, New Testament and Revelation, and it's always in the context of warfare. Uh, Indeed, we could suggest that it's kind of like a victory shout. Uh, God makes everything new through his warring activity. So, um, So the first stanza is, O Israel, praise Lord, praise, praise the Lord, because he saved us in the past. The second stanza, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth, burst into jubilant song with music, make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. So here, notice that the, the priest or the worship leader is now broadening the circle of praise to include all the inhabitants of the earth. And he's calling on them to praise God, who is their king in the present. And then when we move to the third stanza, it says, let the sea resound and everything in it. Let the world and all who live in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing for joy. 
Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Now, through the use of poetic personification, the worship leader broadens the circle of praise even wider to include the entire cosmos, or at least the whole earth, animate and inanimate. And they praise God, who is their, who is the judge who's coming in the future. So as you study those themes of, of, of God as victor, God as king, God as judge, they're all connected to an important theological theme in the Bible, you know, God is a warrior. So this seems to be a post-battle celebration. Now, when I reflect on this psalm in terms of its canonical meaning, particularly as we look to the New Testament, uh, you see that the Old Testament warfares are are uh, heightened and intensified in the New Testament. You know, Jesus says, put away the sword, uh, but the warfare doesn't end. It's now directed toward the spiritual powers and authority. And uh, Jesus presents himself in the New Testament and is understood as that expected warring Messiah of the Old Testament. But as I say, he heightens and intensifies the battle by directing it toward the spiritual powers and authority. And so Christians, as Paul said, are engaged in this spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.10 and following, put on the whole armor of God for your fighting, not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and authority. So, so whereas in the Old Testament time period, the psalm finds its use within the context of Israel's wars, uh, it still remains a important psalm for us as we're engaged in spiritual warfare mm. and and expect the you know expect the second coming of Jesus, which is also described using uh, warfare imagery. You know, he's going to come on a cloud, which in the Old Testament is you know the divine war chariot. In Revelation 19.11 and following, the second coming is described as Jesus riding a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. And so, so the psalm is very important to our own understanding and worship. So those are the types of things I, I try to point out about each of the psalms, what they meant in the Old Testament context, but also how they retain their relevance for our spiritual life today. Right. So it's really picking up on the resonances and echoes of the Psalms uh, later, and even looking back, taking uh, portions of the New Testament and, and reading back into the Psalms also. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's right. I mean, it's really important uh you know, the term reading back is a appropriate one as long as it's as long as that reading back doesn't first of all obscure the meaning of the text in its Old Testament mm. context. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh because sometimes people read the Psalms too quickly from a New Testament perspective. Mm. Um Yeah, that's and, what I was wondering about. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you got you got to be. I mean, Childs himself talked about the importance of first of all understanding what he called the discrete witness of the Old Testament. That is, ask yourself how how did the original audience receive it, and uh, and then and then you know. Uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, watching it. Well, John Levin. Interestingly, John Levinson, the famous uh, Jewish uh, Hebrew Bible scholar at Harvard, I mentioned he's Jewish because he he says, well, of course, Christians are going to should ultimately read the um, Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in the light of the New Testament. He mm-hmm. says. To do, uh, you know, that to say no would be like telling someone to read, you know, Hamlet uh, for a second time without without remembering how it ended, <laughs> or, um, mm. you know, I, I was I was talking, I was speaking at a uh, wisdom and law conference at Pepperdine Law School, and. I was asked to talk about biblical wisdom and I introduced a Christological dimension to it and I was sharing the the platform with Michael Broide, who's a prominent uh, scholar on Jewish law at Emory Law School and and afterwards we talked about it. he goes, yeah, I, I understand that completely. I, I quoted Levinson. He goes, it's like, you know, we Jews, you know, we read we read the uh, Hebrew Bible in the light of the Mishnah, and um, and that was kind of interesting to me. Matter of fact, he was making the point. He was in his lecture. He was raising the point: which is more important for the development of contemporary Jewish law, the Mishnah or the Torah? I didn't know there would necessarily be uh, uh, either or there, but mm-hmm. apparently there was. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, so. Talk a little bit about how you went about writing this commentary. I mean, it seems to me that some parts of it would be easier to write than others, or you could write a little bit about a particular chapter and then move on as, um, uh, you know, the, uh, or, or were you very systematic starting at the beginning and going through to 150? <laughs> That's a good question, too. No, I, I wasn't systematic. Um, with the Psalms, especially with my understanding of the structure of the Psalms, you don't have to be systematic. So uh, the way I wrote it was um, I started writing on the Psalms that I knew a lot about (laughs) and that I focused attention on before in articles or in my lectures or something. And while I'm doing that, I'm I'm thinking and, and doing more research about the Psalms I'm not as familiar with. So, so yeah, actually I kind of skipped around, especially at first. Um, and that was kind of fun to do. And whenever I write a commentary and, you know, I, I've, uh, when I, I just finished a Genesis commentary and I didn't write it that way. I kind of worked my way through the text, but, hmm. um, but I always, you know, and I recommend this to young commentary writers uh, all the time. I always write the introduction last, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's kind of a mistake to write the introduction first because, you know, um, 
you learn things while you're working your way through the particularities of the text. So, so yeah, the introduction, um, I always write last. Okay. So you wrote how to read the Psalms, uh, back in 1987, that's when you published it. Um, what surprised you most in this last, um, you know, uh, endeavor? Like, as you went along, were there things that you really had to reframe or, or approach differently? Or was it more about uh, being able to uh, unpack a particular chapter in the Psalms in a, you know, in a, a compelling way and then having to do it for every chapter rather than to look at it more piecemeal when in another context you wouldn't have to do the whole book. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I think it's more the latter. It's more, I, 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 I'm happy to say in one sense that I, as I look back on how to read the Psalms, I, uh, there aren't any really major changes I would make to it. Oh, I might qualify some things more um yeah for instance i one of the things that struck me was that you know we tend to and there's certainly um reason for this to think of the book of psalms as a prayer book and uh but it's interesting one thing that struck me as i worked through the psalms was the number of psalms which aren't directly addressed to God like we do in prayer. You know, there are psalms which are all, you know, the worship leader talking to the people, or um, or there are two or three psalms which contain divine oracles, um, where where God speaks to the people through throughout. So I think that that was kind of an interesting uh I should have noticed it before but I <laughs> just noticed it um a lot more than this time through that'd be mm-hmm. one example but I think probably the most um you know I in how to read the psalms I talk about how all the psalms anticipate Christ and and I certainly knew how a number of psalms did that when I wrote that, but in in one sense, it was based on Christ's comments and in Luke 24, as I said, and I hadn't worked through everyone mm-hmm. up to this point. And so, so, um, yeah. So, and, and you're I not, mean, and you're not talking specifically about Psalms that would be considered messianic. Oh, um, right. Yeah. How, what's, the, what's the difference? Well, uh, first of all, I, I, I put it this way. Uh, in one sense, there are no messianic psalms, and in another sense, they're all messianic psalms. In the mm. sense that, uh, taking messianic in the broad sense, uh, in the sense that, in my opinion, there no, there's no psalm that was written with a prophetic intention. That is that would only be fulfilled in Christ. Um, let's take an example, yeah. Psalm 2, which is frequently quoted in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and just to read um, a couple lines from Psalm 2 to uh, refresh the memory 
of of our listeners, it begins again once I <laughs> once I get there. Um, it begins. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, "Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles." The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Quoting Second Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will dash them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Uh, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Hmm. Now, when this psalm was written, I agree with the majority of scholars. It was likely written during the monarchic period as either an inauguration hymn for a new Davidic ruler or for some kind of encouragement or celebration within the context of warfare. But in the post-exilic period, when the monarchy's gone, all of these messianic, or all of these um, royal psalms uh, begin to be read more, more consistently in a future-oriented or eschatological way. And certainly during the intertestamental time period, it was connected with the expectation of a future Davidic Messiah. And, of course, the New Testament tells us that that's Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills that expectation, and that's why the New Testament author. So in in one sense, it's not prophetic in that it had a role within the contemporary uh, people of God at the time it was written, but it has its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Hmm. Okay, well, um, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I, I do want to ask one, uh, I have two final questions, and uh, one type of psalm uh, that seems so alien and off-putting to modern readers is the so-called imprecatory psalm. I'm just wondering if you could take a minute to just talk about how you handle those. And, sure, um, sure. Because I know Lewis, C.S. Lewis was so bothered by it that he practically wrote an entire book about it, The Reflections on yeah, the Psalm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but how do you deal with it? Sure, in, in your sure. Uh, yeah, and I, I uh, to be honest, as much as I respect C.S. Lewis, I, I don't like the way he treats the imprecatory or or curses of the psalms um they're they're really embedded within a broader genre which is the lament there there's you know to say imprecatory psalm is a little bit misleading because there's no psalm that's totally dedicated to imprecations but it's, it's in the context mm-hmm. of lament mm-hmm. psalm 109 comes pretty close though, i have to say <laughs> but um but lewis yeah you're right lewis is approach is basically they're sub-Christian and they need to be ignored. Um, and, mm-hmm. and there's some pretty, there's some pretty <laughs> disturbing language in, the, in these psalms. But mm-hmm. let me suggest this. First of all, 
Um, the we sh- the Psalms encourage us to be totally honest with God with what we're feeling. And so if we are angry, uh, God permits us to express our anger to him. Now notice something about these Psalms. They are not saying, oh, Lord, please give me opportunity and resources so I can kill my enemy. (laughs) It's saying, Lord, you kill my enemy. In other Mm. words, it's turning one's anger over to God. Mm. And that can serve a very cathartic uh, purpose in our lives rather than sort of bottling up and trying to hide our anger from God. We share it with him. And that's the beauty of the lament. You know, we could say anything to God and and he respects us for it. Uh, we can even say we're angry with him or disappointed in him. Uh, it's different from what you get in numbers you know, the grumbling in the wilderness, that's because they're complaining about God behind his back. <laughs> mm. So, um, so well, yeah, so, so that's, and I, and I do think, you know, um, Christians today can pray those psalms, uh, but should pray also that God will um, train, transform us so that, you know, we don't want the destruction of our enemies, but rather the salvation of our enemies. Mm. Well, I wish we had more time to explore this topic because it, it's fascinating. Um, and uh, but our traditional final question on the New Books Network is: What are you working on now? <laughs> well, thanks for asking. I, I I think I mentioned I just finished a Genesis commentary uh, for Zondervan and the Story of God series. It'll be the first Old Testament volume out in January or February. Oh, what's been published to date in that series? Uh, in that series, uh, Scott McKnight is is um, doing the New Testament, and so far, the volume on um, Philippians has come out by Lynn Kohick of Wheaton. And uh, First and Second Thessalonians by Byron, whom I don't know personally, but it's a good volume. And then Scott himself did a more thematic rather than a book. He did Sermon on the Mount uh, for that series. So those are the ones that are out. Now, when mine comes out in January, February, uh, Michael Bird, Mike Bird's commentary on Romans will come out. So Oh, wow. Yeah, so Michael Bird's a really impressive, youngish, he's getting older, but youngish, uh, but very prolific scholar uh, and writer. So I'm pleased that they'll be released at the same time. So, um, so And then John Walden and I just uh, finished How to Read Job for the How to Read series. So what I'm working on right now is uh, I haven't given it its final title, but the working title is It's a Theology of Wisdom. It's kind of a synthetic approach to wisdom, literature, and thought in uh, the Bible. And I'm doing that for Baker. Okay. Well, it sounds like a great project. Uh, Maybe we'll have you back on when you're able to talk about uh, Genesis once it's published. So you said February of 2016. That's right. I'd love to. 
Great. Well, thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and I'm quite sure our listeners have too. Well, thank you, Garrett. I, I enjoyed it as well. All right. Take care. You too. We've been talking with Tremper Longman III about his commentary on the Psalms, published by IVP Academic, in the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary Series. If you would like to contact me or to suggest a topic for a future program, please feel free to write to newbooksinbiblicalstudies at gmail.com. Well, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you join us again for a future program.